Coming up today, we look into a dementia detection breakthrough and find out why the cops got involved when a group of vigilante parents tried to take on their school's broken IT system. You're listening to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me this week are Matt Burgess. Hello. Matt Reynolds. Hello. And Amit Kawala. Hello. This was the week when the US added NSO Group, the controversial Israeli company behind the Pegasus spyware, to its trade blacklist. Pegasus has reportedly been used by nation states to target the phones of rights activists and journalists. NSO Group said it was dismayed by the decision. It was also the week when Meta announced Facebook would be ditching facial recognition. Facebook is going to delete more than 1 billion face templates that it's generated in the last 10 years. However, Meta still plans to use facial recognition in its other products. And it was finally the week when India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi announced that the country would hit net zero emissions by 2070. It's the first time the country has set a net zero pledge. And while it's a way past the 2050 net zero target hoped for at COP26, it is a hugely ambitious pledge for a developing country that is still a long, long way from the peak of its CO2 emissions. Matt Burgess, you've fallen for the trick. You're calling them meta. Uh, everybody seems to be doing it, and I think, I don't know, it's, it's what they've legally called themselves. So. I'm, I'm trying um, to remember if there was this same wave of enthusiasm when Google tried to persuade everybody that it was called Alphabet. I seem to remember there was, and then over time everyone went, mm, no, actually this is a bit stupid because nobody really knows what Alphabet is, whereas everybody knows what Google is. Yeah, I think there was that swell of sort of uh, enthusiasm, but I guess that that's, well, maybe we'll see if that happens again here with Meta slash Facebook slash Meta. It's also, I don't know, not to dwell on it for too long, it's also maybe a better name than Alphabet. Alphabet just sort of doesn't seem to refer to anything, whereas Meta, well, it's catchier for one. I don't know. I don't think Meta refers to anything either, does it? It's sort of, I mean, it refers to itself, obviously, but it's, um, it's, kind of just a vague buzzword yes that is true um i don't know maybe they're both terrible names and neither of them deserve to stick uh so yes next week matt burgess let's go back to referring to meta as facebook or facebook meta or any sort of fudge therein what did we learn this week amit uh, I learned that there is a species of monkey named after an online casino the goldenpalace.com monkey was discovered in <laughs> bolivia in 2004 and it got its name after the researchers who found it auctioned off the naming rights for $650,000 to raise funds for the national park where the species was found. Is is this good? Are we pleased by this? I think it's wildly dystopian. But I mean, I guess it's good that they raised so much money that they would probably wouldn't have been able to raise otherwise. But it's a slippery slope in my view. Where does, where does the slippery slope lead? Does the, does the Amazon rainforest end up becoming the sort of Chevron yeah. adventure park? It's like the Sumatran rhino brought to you by Halfords. (laughs) 
Oh, good. I'm so pleased to be living in this timeline. Matt Reynolds, what did you learn this week? So I learned that in 1835, the US president, Andrew Jackson, was presented with a 600 kilogram cheese made using milk from every single cow in the town of Cheshire, Massachusetts. At the time, it was described by people in the area as a evil smelling horror with an aroma that stretched several blocks beyond the White House. Uh, Jackson basically didn't know what to do with the cheese. He asked some of his friends to have some cheese and they (laughs) barely made a dent in it. So eventually he opened it up to the public and apparently 10,000 people came within two hours to take away the cheese piece by piece. Well, if, if Amit's fact saddened me, your fact has gladdened me. I want to go back to 1835 and have a giant 10,000 person cheese party. That sounds great. Well, I mean, you've always got to carry a cheese knife around just in case you come across a cheese and you might need to break off a bit and, and take it home to the family. So, you know, it, people that were prepared, they really came away with the goods that day. Noted. Very good facts from both of you. Our first story this week, Matt, is all about diagnosis for dementia. That's right. So, Amit, you've been looking at a new test that could help us diagnose dementia and Alzheimer's disease earlier, right? Yeah, that's right. So the Integrated Cognitive Assessment Test, uh, which was developed by a British startup called Cognitivity Neurosciences, has just been granted FDA clearance for being marketed in the United States. And it's being trialled at several NHS trusts in the UK across more than 40 different sites. Uh, It's been billed as a quick and easy replacement for the pen and paper memory tests, which are often currently used early in a dementia diagnosis. Uh, These are things where subjects might have to name animals from line drawings or remember a list of words and repeat them or copy drawings accurately. This test is different. Rather than measuring memory or what's known as executive function, which are some of the higher level functions in the brain like task switching and, and focus, this test aims to assess the raw processing and feed of the visual system in the brain with a test that should work the same regardless of someone's language skills, cultural background or education level. Uh, the Cognitivity CEO, Sina Habibi, says it's like using the, the kind of measuring the, the raw kind of speed of a computer, the CPU of a computer rather than its um, memory, rather than its hard drive. Okay, so this is quite a different test than what we're used to. The test you're talking about, the the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, is that the one that Donald Trump famously repeated that list of five words to show off how clever he was when he was saying camera and something else? Is is that the the traditional (laughs) test we're talking about? I'm not not 100% sure if it's actually exactly the same one, but it's of that ilk for sure. Right. So, So what's changed with this uh, this new approach is quite different. It's based on you know, visuals instead of recalling words and stuff like that. So what, what's the kind of philosophy behind changing this approach? So, yeah, so as I mentioned, so it's aimed to assess visual processing. So the way the test works is it runs on an iPad and you basically see this blank, black screen and there's space two halves left and right and images flash up. So there's like an image of a zebra, image of a railway bridge, images of beach scenes, images of exotic birds, all in black and white. And then there's kind of, monochrome grids and fuzzy static kind of interspersed with all this stuff and what you have to do is tap on the right hand side of the screen every time you see an animal and on the left hand side of the screen every time you don't see an animal and, and basically it, it it taps into the fact that our visual system when it's working properly is supposed to be very very good at, at recognizing animals for evolutionary reasons so it's thought that if you have a slowdown in this task on the ipad it signifies something that's gone wrong underlying in the brain um so the way this test works is that it takes your speed and accuracy on that test and it combines it with information about your age and your um, diet and exercise and lifestyle and ethnicity and then it uses an AI to give you a kind of overall risk score 
for your risk of getting dementia. Um, Habibi says the ICA could be used to conduct regular screening tests on the over 50s. So in the same way that you might take blood pressure, you could look at the brain with an annual test to see if there's something malfunctioning. So you get this risk score. If you're fine, then you go away and you come back a year later and do it again. If you get a kind of low, low score lower than 50, then you might go for like further tests or brain scans to see if there is actually something wrong. So at the moment, often the first signs and then diagnosis that people get of dementia is when things start going wrong in their day-to-day life. You know, they, maybe they, they start forgetting words they used to know or they you know, can't work their way back home. Usually that's happening at a much later point in life. But with this test, we're talking about people potentially getting an early diagnosis or certainly taking this test in their 50s, which might be decades before the symptoms of dementia might become clear. And perhaps that's too early to do anything about it. I mean, is there any point in taking a test for a disease that you can't necessarily do something about at that point? Yeah, so one of the things about dementia, one of the, it's, it, it's the most feared disease according to a bunch of studies. And one of the things that makes it so scary is the fact that there isn't really any treatments or any cures um, that we can do. Um, but we do know a lot more about the risk factors. So there are things that you can do to prevent yourself from getting dementia or at least lower your risk of getting dementia. So lifestyle tweaks like eating better, drinking less, exercising more can have a particular impact, uh, particularly for vascular dementia, which is caused by poor blood supply to the brain. So things that improve your heart health have been linked to dementia um there's also a bunch of kind of genetic risk factors as well but it's been shown by research at exeter that you can suppress those genetic risk risk factors again by adhering to a really really strict lifestyle what we don't know is whether interventions say if you took the test at the age of 50 and it said you had an increased risk of getting dementia whether an intervention in lifestyle at that stage would actually make a difference there's no evidence to suggest that yet so you know, as, as this question of whether there's any point in taking a test for a disease you can't do anything about, it's, it's sort of a philosophical question, really. So it can help people get their affairs in order and plan for, you know, end of life and write their will and all this kind of stuff. But then arguably, it's probably something people should be doing anyway. Um, but things are starting to change. So 15 years ago, if you'd said there was no point, you might have been right. But now I think things are slightly different. And that's because there are new drugs coming to market that some people hope might be able to have a an effect if you use them early on, right? Yeah, so um, in June 2021, um, the FDA in the US approved a drug called aducanumab, which is the first new drug for Alzheimer's disease in 18 years. Um, so it kind of, so I'll explain a bit about how dementia is thought to work in the brain. So there's essentially, you get this buildup in dementia and Alzheimer's patients of this protein called amyloid, which kind of builds up within nerve cells um, and, and forms these kind of tangles or plaques in the cells that are thought to slow down information processing through the brain. And then when dementia actually becomes worse, you also see this other protein called tau. And researchers have been struggling for years to entangle exactly what process these two proteins play in the brain. But the theory they have now is that once amyloid builds up to a certain level, it then triggers the tau protein. And that's what causes the bulk of the symptoms by killing brain cells and interfering with the brain's ability to send clean and clear signals. So this drug, aducanumab, um, is designed to stick to amyloid molecules and make it easier for the immune system to clear them out. But the science on this is not totally clear because in the past, drug treatments aimed at clearing amyloids have failed to make much of a difference. So we're not completely sure that even if you have that early diagnosis, you can really act on that information in a useful way. Yeah, so... I guess what's changed recently is this idea of the there being like a critical threshold for the amount of amyloid that then triggers the tau and triggers the cascade that causes the symptoms. So 
there's a theory that, and this is a controversial theory, so it's not exactly accepted widely, but there's a theory that the drugs might work better if they're used earlier. So if you can clear the amyloid before you get to a certain threshold, it actually might make more of a difference than what we've seen in clinical trials in the past that have tried to clear amyloid but haven't seen any reduction in symptoms. So in that context, a test that would allow you to identify someone who's at risk of dementia very, very early on could actually make a really, really big difference when combined with the drugs that could then clear the amyloid from their brain before it reaches that critical threshold. But this is still something of an open question, I guess, because if you imagine this test opened up to all over 50s in the UK, so that's tens of millions of people, if you only had a tiny, tiny percentage of those that had a worrying result that would, you know, require a further checkup or require a a referral to someone else, that's potentially tens or more likely hundreds of thousands of people that may be identified as being at risk. And this raises a bit of a bit of a difficult question because you suddenly have lots and lots more people entering the health service that need to be checked out and need to be directed to a certain um, you know, certain resource or, or further tests, could very widespread earlier dementia tests lead to some unexpected problems? Yeah, one of the issues, that, so one of the issues with dementia at the moment is it's hugely underfunded and the health service is already struggling to cope with the number of people that have uh, symptoms of dementia or need, you know, full-time care or mental health provisions or whatever. And, you know, it's it's very widespread disease. So one in 14 over 65s in the UK will get dementia, one in six over 80s. Um, And there are concerns that given the lack of, you know, available treatment options and the lack of resources in, in the area, that widespread use of screening tests might just overwhelm the health system. If you tell a healthy 50 year old that they're at risk of getting dementia, you've got a, you've got a, you've got a 50 year old who's now very anxious and, you know, doesn't have any options or any support so there isn't the infrastructure to kind of support these people so the current the worry is you know where are they going to go for that post-test counseling um one of the people i spoke to from the charity dementia uk says that there's a moral obligation if we're going to provide these tests as the nhs is starting to do with trials then there's a moral obligation to also provide the support to people that test positive or you know have an increased risk and i wonder if there's also this secondary problem that if this test presumably would be voluntary maybe it'd be recommended to everyone but presumably it's up to those people whether they choose to go for the test and choose to take up that offer if it becomes slightly problematic about who chooses to take this test so do we end up in a situation where people who are very engaged with their health and perhaps have the spare time to worry about future health problems that are not causing them an issue at the moment perhaps those are the people that end up getting early diagnoses and then the people who have so much stuff going on in their life that they can't really afford to worry about, maybe I'll get ill in 20 years, maybe those people get left behind because they just don't have the time or the mental bandwidth to go and get these tests early on. Do do we end up perhaps running the risk of creating this two-tier system where those people that might have had better health outcomes anyway, they end up getting the early intervention and then other people get left behind? Yeah, and ironically, the people people that are healthier are less likely to get it in the first place so actually the other group that probably needs these interventions the least um i think you can see it in two ways right so i mean cynically you can look at a product like the ica with sort of a you know a cynical viewpoint and say that okay well there's a reason that this is being launched now and it's because you've got this very large very affluent demographic cohort that's moving into this age bracket 50s 60s early 70s where their risk of getting dementia is the highest so I think we are going to see a lot more products aimed at tackling dementia, screening tests, you know, new drug treatments coming down the line because of this huge group of people who are now 
you know, potentially about to be afflicted by it. Um, but, you know, one of the researchers I spoke to says that they hope that this test will also democratise access to brain health. So, you know, because it's so easy to do, because it's done on an iPad and you don't necessarily need to have a doctor in the room with you to conduct the test, it can reach people who maybe get left out traditionally. So a lot of studies into dementia have been used by, have been, uh, have used volunteers who don't accurately reflect the underlying population. Um, so what um, what this doctor I spoke to hopes is that, you know, this ability to detect dementia earlier could change our attitude to diseases, neurodegenerative diseases more widely. You know, we may get to a point where it's something that you monitor, like you might monitor your blood pressure or your heart rate. You might start monitoring your kind of cognitive processing speed using a test like this. And I think that wider awareness will then make the improve our understanding of the disease and then also hopefully help people become more aware of mental health symptoms and help them get tackle the disease earlier generally speaking this is all part of a change in the way we look after people right at the moment the health service is is reactive and we're moving to a place where it's predictive or at least trying to get out ahead of problems but from from what you're saying here we can get out ahead of the problem but there's not a great deal that we can do to fix it and there are similar concerns about people wearing things like an apple watch which can give you all sorts of information about how healthy or unhealthy you might be and more advanced sensors are going to make that information even richer but if you don't have the healthcare system behind it to do something with that data then all you're doing is putting people on notice that they might be about to get some god-awful disease that they can't do anything about right me and Matt were talking about this before, and I guess the argument that you'd make from the the perspective of, of the companies collecting this data is that the more data they have, the more accurate they can make the diagnosis and the more likely it is that they'll be able to develop treatments, right? So so yes, right now, maybe the, the app gets it right, you know, a certain percentage of the time, but actually over time, they'll get more data on whether or not a certain pattern of behaviour on the test correlates with dementia or not. They'll be able to zero into specifically what kinds of things correlate with dementia in terms of behaviours. Combined with tests on biomarkers and brain scans, they should hopefully be able to get a better picture of the disease. And, and data forms an important part of that. On an individual level, though, right, this is going to require us to, pardon the phrase, but like rewire our brains and think differently about how we maintain our health right at the moment you kind of if most people will just sort of cruise through life they go and see a doctor when they feel like something isn't going like it should be or there's there are certain tests that are targeted at certain people at certain times in their life to search for, for cancer and things like this but this will require a different way of thinking we'll have access to all of this data and how we approach it like being told that you have a certain percentage chance of getting a certain disease or that you should be taking this drug to prevent your chance of getting x from increasing to a certain percentage right that that, that that's quite weird because we kind of don't think about our bodies in that way at the moment because we don't have that data we're not confronted with it yeah we're also very bad at assessing risk as well like, and you can tell by the way that reports on new new treatments for cancer or things like that get reported in the press that you know it's not your it's not your absolute risk if you get a score of 100 on this test it doesn't mean you're 100% going to get dementia it's just it's a relative measure of the the risk factors involved and i think there needs to be an education piece around this if we're going to start using these sorts of monitoring tests more widely you're right we need to educate the public on what these things actually mean what a risk score actually means that it doesn't 
mean that you are guaranteed to get a particular disease. It just means that your risk may be slightly elevated unless you make these specific changes to your lifestyle. When I listen to the radio and radio hosts do this, I absolutely hate it, but I'm going to do it anyway. Would you want to use a test that could tell you if you were likely to have dementia in your future life? Podcast at wired.co.uk. But seriously, in a general way, do you think this move towards predictive rather than reactionary medicine is a good thing if we don't have the treatments to back it up? In, in other words, is, is ignorance bliss or do we need to start thinking differently about medicine and about our own health podcast at wired.co.uk with your thoughts on that i would say we'll include a link to the story in the show notes but it's not live until monday so check back on wired.co.uk to read the full story our second story this week matt you've been working on for several months and you've been following this really quite odd fight between a city and a bunch of disgruntled parents yeah, so for the best part of this year, the city of Stockholm has been battling a group of parents. It all revolves around the city's school platform, which is a technical system that's meant to do everything that's basically related to education. Um, and this system launched back in August of 2018, and it's basically been very glitchy and difficult to use ever since then. The parents say it doesn't work, teachers have had problems with it, and there's been all sorts of issues. Um, so essentially, a group of parents uh, ended up building their own system uh, at the end of last year, and they reverse engineered the code and made an open source version, putting uh, their own app online. Um, and they say it just uses the information from the official system. To cut a long story short, because we'll get into it in a second, the city really didn't like this. And it's called the app illegal, tried to get the parents to shut it down. And earlier this year, it went to the sort of more extreme length of reporting the app and its parents to the police. OK, let's back up a second. You briefly described the official system. So what does it do and what's so broken about it? So this is a system called School Platform, essentially, um, and it is was commissioned in 2013. And it's made up of three different large systems with itself, uh, which have 18 individual modules within them. So there's a lot of complexity. And when it was commissioned and procured, it was uh, it procured by five different suppliers who would build all the t- all the parts of the individual technology that feed into the system. Um, and over the sort of like the last um, seven or eight years since it was commissioned, um, and it took five years to build, uh, it's had more than 100 million US dollars spent on it. Um, this is in building it and sort of maintenance and the overall infrastructure. And it comp- and its individual parts are compi- comprised of three different areas. So there's a system for parents, there's a system for pupils, and there's a system for teachers. And they all sort of interact with each other, but also are sort of technically separate as well and it is supposed to do everything involved around education within uh, the city of Stockholm home and using the platform is a sort of compulsory uh, thing so all of the schools preschools use it and there's up to sort of 500,000 people using this system in general across sort of teachers parents and kids Um, so teachers can uh, enter registers and sort of student details on there children can access official information and parents can see their children's schedules what they've got coming up at school, the types of events that are going on, news from the school and access children's grades via the platform. Um, But the complexity of it all has basically meant that it's been a bit of a mess. So although the system did come in under budget when it was being created, uh, the project was delayed by a couple of years. Multiple suppliers changed hands when they couldn't uh, 
over some of the systems that were being created and the local press have basically called it a disaster. Um, a bunch of teachers told me that it doesn't work and makes their lives harder. Um, there was a data breach involving the system in November 2020 when it had been found out for sort of the last two years. Uh, the system had been leaking uh, teachers' personal addresses and information, as well as sort of like children's sensitive data. Um, so there was, it was hit by a fine from the regulator. Um, and essentially, the parents that were sort of using this decided that they'd had enough of using this system and wanted to build something that could replicate the functions that just the parents could use on it. And that's where things get a bit different, right? Up until now, this is a classic story of government procurement, big, ambitious project loads of money thrown at it it kind of doesn't live up to um what it was sold as as being everybody gets kind of annoyed with it normally we just have to live with these bad systems that governments procure on our behalf but in this instance as you say parents took matters into their own hands uh, yeah, so at the end of uh, November last year, uh, around the same time that the data breach happened and the fine um, hit, basically a group of parents got together and decided to build something which has ultimately become the Open School Platform and its Swedish name very much mimics the um, the school platform name. And it's an open source app with all of its code that's out it out in the public on GitHub and is built only for parents. So it isn't something that teachers can use. It isn't something that pupils can use. And the sort of brains behind this was a tech CEO and developer and parent of three uh, called Christian Langdren. And he um, basically got really annoyed by this system not working. So at the end of November 2020, he logged into his parent app, uh, the official one, and then opened sort of Chrome's developer tools to look at the underlying source code. Uh, and within this, he sort of was a few hours digging around the system, found an uh, unpublished sort of API, which wasn't really working very well. Um, so essentially, he went about sort of rebuilding that API to be a lot sort of lighter and a lot um, easier to use or easier to sort of transmit data across it. Um, and he basically built a new layer on top of the school system that was already there. So um, this was only something that... Um, uh, parents could use by logging into their official account and it was essentially just pulls uh, information from um, the school platform itself into a sort of layer on top the way that they sort of described it is essentially this is just the way that you would use a browser in many ways it's connecting to a system and pulling in information uh, that's already existing uh, somewhere else um, and so essentially after he built this or got it working it took a, a few hours he managed to get a, a system working he then started chatting with a few friends and other sort of tech developers and people within Stockholm and they decided to basically team up and build an app um, and they did this over sort of the Christmas break uh, and by February this year 2021 uh, they published it on all of the app stores and since then it's had around 10,000 downloads and really it's quite a simple app there's nothing that's sort of super technical or super um, complicated about it it pulls in information from the school system parents can report sickness they can access their children's grades which are done in sort of a separate browser and see their schedules and most importantly for Christian uh, he was uh, particularly annoyed with having to dig through multiple menus in the official system to find out when he had to take his kids uh, gym or PE kit to school with them each day or which kids needed it when so he essentially built this for himself and then expanded it out to a bigger team which has grown to sort of like 30 40 people that are um, all developing and contributing code and translating this project but as we'll get on to the city didn't like it yeah as you say, that should be the end of the story, right? 
job done. They've found a clever way of building this layer on top of the official system. Nobody gets hurt. Nobody needs to worry about it. Everyone is happy. But the city really, really, really didn't like this. Why? So it's a bit, a bit hard to sort of work out why the city has sort of opposed this so much. And we'll go into a little bit of the actions that the city took in a second. But I think just as a bit of, I guess, speculation from my uh, front here, having looked at this for quite a while, um, the city might have opposed this just because the sort of parents did this super quick and very cheap and essentially spent no money on it. Whereas obviously this school system, which is a much bigger system uh, than what these parents have just built, um, but has taken a long time and had a lot of money spent on it. So you could see how, in some ways, they would take uh, maybe umbrage at that overall um, problem with this this thing just being cropping up from nowhere, essentially. Um, but whatever the reason behind that is, and the city has said that it just didn't necessarily understand what the, uh, what the app was doing and wanted to investigate it, it didn't like it. Um, so before the app was published, uh, officials said that it could be illegal and they said that they had concerns about it potentially accessing people's personal data um, they said it was a new system and they hadn't seen anything like this before and they didn't really know what to do about it so they launched some investigations into it and wanted to find out what was happening behind the scenes um, and the open school platform team and the parents have basically said that they don't pull in uh, any personal data the app itself doesn't access any there isn't any stored it's just a layer on top of an existing system and the parents that access it if you log in as a parent you can only see information that you will be able to see if you logged in uh, in the official system. It's using the same credentials and the same login uh, process, basically. So it's just pulling stuff that's already sort of available and publicly available in a lot of cases uh, and putting it into a new uh, new user interface, really. Um, that's what essentially it comes down to. But the city tried to shut it down. Um, they... They opened an investigation in February into the app and what it did, they conducted a security review with an external company, um, which actually wasn't, although it was completed uh, about two weeks after the um, open school app was published, it this in security review and investigation wasn't actually published at all uh, until the open school uh, app team and the parents behind it went to court and got the official documents. Um, but while that was sort of a lengthy process that was happening over a few months, uh, the city also changed the school platform code in the official system. They made a bunch of changes that they said were for security reasons um, to stop the open school app working. And sort of in response or retaliation, uh, the open school team just essentially worked around these code changes. Uh, and during March last year, um, they say that the city updated the official code to stop their open version from working about seven times. And they responded with seven different updates uh, changing their code to make sure it continued to working and then the city raised the states in april this year they said that um, they got to the end of their internal investigation and they thought there could be a criminal data breach happening they thought that the uh, open school app could be um, making uh, accessing people's data when it shouldn't be um, so they reported it to the police to investigate further the police right i mean th th this is this is getting a little bit nuts so you've got you know, parents doing a good job building a better UI on top of a broken piece of infrastructure. They don't see any issue with it. Everyone's kind of happy. The city really, really throws its toys out of the pram. And then after several weeks or months of looking into this thing, they call the cops and things kind of quickly calm down once this happens, right? But it's it's quite an alarming moment, right? This guy, Christian, had 
police coming to his house and interviewing him. Yeah, so Christian, as I said, he's a tech CEO and his, his, the company that he actually runs does stuff around sort of like um, digital innovation and sort of consulting for organisations around the products and things that they produce. So this sort of thing was pretty much like quite a standard um, sort of app build for him, really. And uh, he was saying that once the um, once it, the team had been reported to the police, he was he was quite process was quite scary with uh, police coming to his door to interview him and uh, and sort of like look into this app and he was obviously concerned about the impact that that could have on his business as well because he didn't see that he'd done anything wrong in this case of just using stuff that's already out in the open and pulling it into a new interface there was really sort of a surprise that it had gone or been escalated to this level um, and earlier I mentioned that security review which was conducted right when the app was launched so as I said it wasn't published and uh, the team had to uh, the open school team had to go to the courts to get this actual documentation but then when the police reviewed it as well uh, it was included in the official police report and it said that this security review which was published uh, I think it's worth stressing right at the beginning of this all this entire process said that the app wasn't a threat and it wasn't accessing anybody's personal data it was just pulling uh, existing information through to a new uh, user interface and essentially after several months of waiting the summer holidays were involved in this as well stringing out the process a bit the police decided not to pursue the investigation they went further than the official external security report and they said that all of the data that the open school platform using was in the was in the public domain and was public information from the city anyway um and just to really sort of uh like complete the story i guess uh just a month or so ago the city uh did a U-turn and said that it will now license the app. So it's going to uh, work with the open school platform and the developers if they can reach an agreement around sort of some of the details and uh, how it's provided. Um, and they are going to um, hopefully be uh, using this officially as a, as a more alternative to the, to the school platform that already exists. And other cities in Sweden are also looking at this and sort of working out the details around how they can use the open school platform as well for their own systems. And once those agreements are in place, um, Christian says he's planning to make sure that the team and all the volunteer parents that have been working on this get paid for their contributions that they've obviously done in their own time around their own work. So the full circle has been completed, really. It's it's kind of a ridiculous story um, and quite a relatable one. I think all of us, when we interact with government, are often less frustrated by a kind of 1990s vibe that you get from the interface or the complexity of getting simple information out of these huge convoluted systems. And it, it's also quite a strange story in so much as from the outside, we might see Sweden as quite a technically technologically advanced nation but it turns out that it ranks very very low on rankings of sort of digital infrastructure um even though it's it's home to companies like spotify and klarna and king it's got a very very strong tech startup tech startup ecosystem but like a lot of countries it's state digital infrastructure is really really poor and, and ultimately this comes down to that tension right we're still forced to use these old, broken, poorly procured systems by the state when in our day-to-day -day lives we're using products developed by Apple and Google and Microsoft and Facebook and Meta and whoever. And and, and people won't stand for that anymore. And in this instance, they, they took it into their own hands. And the good news that comes out of this is they might be able to force through some positive change, right? 
Yeah, that's really the sort of underlying message here that actually these types of big government IT procurements, we've seen them like multiple times uh, in pretty much every single country, um, big contracts worth tens of millions, hundreds of millions in some cases, when they when they happen, uh, they can often take years to develop. And these types of uh, systems, when they come to start being used, the world has moved on very much from when they were initially procured. Um, so I think that the sort of one of the underlying messages here is that governments and people within public services thinking about this type of technology need to be able to create, create the fairly simple um, systems such as public APIs that other people can use to help develop and access information that is sort of in the public domain or is used for sort of like citizen services and paid for quite often by taxpayers. And if you do, um, if you do make these uh, APIs and things like that open, even though it's a very simple thing, other startups, companies, technology providers, etc., will be able to build their own systems on top of this that will potentially be better than the government uh, procured uh, apps or things like that that people are creating and we've seen that over the years with such things like open data and these aren't new ideas either like uh, I think in London particularly because we're, we're based here um, Transport for London the, the, the organisation that runs the, the, the tube and other transport networks across London has made a lot of its data open and we've seen uh, apps such as City Mapper and things like that built on top of uh, that sort of approach and it's just really moving beyond that idea of governments need to control all of the technology and the data and the APIs and the systems behind it. And actually people that have different knowledge and know how they want to use these products and build these types of things um, can actually do a better job in some cases. And that's, that's something that can bring economic benefit and also just the quality of people's lives and the, the, the friction between them and the governments and the public authorities that they're using. So I think like that message is, is key to this, even though the overall situation with what happened with this school platform and getting the police involved and everything was a bit ridiculous. There's a, there's a bigger message to that type of story, really. Yeah, I think it's one that a lot of us can relate to. All of us will have experienced frustrations with using these these broken government systems. And the the example that you give with TFL and City Mapper is is a good one because that's off the back of data being made available to the open market, if you like, and a private company coming along and going, "Huh, we can do something really clever with this." Rather than TFL thinking okay, we're going to get our own in-house app development team and we're going to make this thing and then we're going to have to maintain it, which costs loads of money and potentially a public body such as TFL isn't best place to do that. Podcast at wired.co.uk. I know we've got a lot of listeners all over the world and quite a few of you are listening from Sweden. Have you um, had issues with the Stockholm school platform? Have you switched over to the open one? And more, more generally, people's frustrations with government procured systems. Have there been any progress in making them more open and available so that clever tech people can go in and shake things up? Podcast at wired.co.uk with your thoughts on that or anything else that we talked about on the show this week. Now, the inbox was overflowing this week, if an inbox can overflow when it's got infinite storage space. Lewis from Guatemala, who listened, who's listened to the podcast since the very first episode, got in touch about Meta, which we talked about on the show last week. He says that one angle that we should have spent a little bit more time on was gaming. He says, much of what Mark Zuckerberg talks about struck me as things that already exist in games. Lewis is a big fan of Minecraft, which he points out is owned by Microsoft which has pockets just as deep, if not deeper, than Facebook, even if it hasn't signalled intentions to build whatever a metaverse might be. 
But Lewis makes the point that Minecraft could be um, a big player in the metaverse space and could even beat Facebook, right? It's hugely popular, especially amongst kids, and has loads of untapped potential. I, I think this is a really good point, right? There's been a lot written over the last couple of weeks since this big meta announcement that what Mark Zuckerberg is basically talking about already exists in video games. But the problem with Facebook's metaverse is the games that Facebook showed, if, if we're considering them games, kind of sucked, right? You don't want to play a game where you sit in a boring meeting with your colleagues or hang out with your friends in some sort of fancy looking meeting room. You play games for adventure, for escapism. And what Zook's presenting is kind of this slightly tedious corporate version of that where Facebook can hoover up all the data and the profits. So it's, 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 it's an interesting parallel to draw. Lewis, you might call it gaming facebook might want to call it the metaverse i'm probably more on your side and say yes the metaverse already exists and it's just games yeah and i think since lewis actually wrote in microsoft did this week uh, say that it's creating its own version of the metaverse for microsoft teams um, and it did a uh, a bunch of sort of uh, digital avatars and stuff uh, and also powerpoint in a uh, virtual environment like this but yeah i think maybe um it should stick to that more uh gaming approach if it really wants to make it stick yes it did the very very the, the horrible sort of legless weird floating avatars moving through this sort of 3d powerpoint presentation it looked absolutely horrific and it, it's falling into the same trap that facebook meta is falling into by assuming that remote work can be made better by existing inside a video game no 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 People like playing video games to escape. They don't want to disappear into a virtual world where people are giving them presentations about fiscal results. Matt Reynolds, three things for you to take on. Over to you. Yeah, so a few readers wrote in to share their thoughts on this uh, story we talked about, about the ethical trade-offs that might come with switching to lower carbon meat. Basically, eat more chicken, kill more animals is the, the short version of it. So Dan wrote in to say, on the topic of meat alternatives, I've tried quite a few of them while reducing my meat consumption for the benefit of environmental impact. And I've never quite got the concept of meat replacements. The fact that alternatives taste different doesn't bother me as long as they taste nice. It's a fair point. You don't need to go for a plant-based meat if you're happy with, you know, something based on chickpeas or, you know, some other kind of form of protein or even not protein. So it's not all about the uh, meat alternatives. Dimmy wrote in on uh, the same topic saying, you are saying that if we eat more plant-based food, billions of chickens will be saved. I would argue that these chickens wouldn't be bred in the first place. So it's not really saving them. Um, it's, of course, better not to kill billions of animals so we can eat more meat but it's not exactly the same as not killing tigers and elephants i think this is a, it's an interesting point i think this point has been raised a lot in um you know in relation to this whole question around factory farming so i've not spoken to a chicken or I've, actually i've spoken to a chicken they've never spoken back to me um but i do know that the life of a factory farm chicken is pretty nasty and it's pretty short. It's basically six weeks, can't really move. You're covered in your own shit and then you're hung upside down and then you're killed. It's, it's, it's a bit rough. Um, so I think the argument is basically that it's probably better not to live than to have that kind of existence. I think that's up for debate, really. But I think that, um, you know, it, it's worth knowing exactly what the lives of these animals would be before you, um, you know, think about, mm, maybe we should or maybe we shouldn't. So actually the quality of, of life of these animals really matters. Maybe if we're talking about animals living good lives and then being killed, maybe the dynamics of this 
slightly change. Dimi did say that, um, uh, I also wanted to answer your question on lab-grown meat. Ever since I've heard about it, I've been waiting to switch to that kind of meat. I have no reservations and I'm ready to go all in. And I think that this is the future of food. Just to jump in on that future of food line around lab-grown meat, as someone who eats meat sparingly and is looking to remove it completely from their diet once my kids are old enough to not demand sausages with every meal i think it, like the, the future of food if you like it kind of looks a bit like a beetroot or a chickpea or or something right it's not growing these huge silos of meat-like slurry it's pushing people towards eating the diets that we really should be eating rather than considering that you need to have a massive slab of pork with every meal or at least that's how i'm starting to think about it anyway yeah i think that's a really interesting debate because it's the whole idea of whether it's easier to encourage people to make behavior changes or to bring technologies that mean they can keep the same behavior without having the impacts i think if you look at something like uh you know electric cars they work because they say you can have your cake and eat it you can still go anywhere but you can do it in a way that's environmentally um you know low impact but of course the best option is not to have a car at all because then you don't have the emissions associated with energy production or the emissions associated with um uh with producing the car in the first place so i think it's definitely you kind of need these both the, the both of these technologies you need a way to allow the behavior to continue in a lower impact way and encourage people to transition off behavior I, I think it's definitely a double approach especially because something like lab grown meat is a very long way away if it will exist at all at scale so we, we need both of these things and we got one final email from rory who said i listen to your podcast every week it will be sad and odd that vicky's voice will no longer be in the mix as with all of you she often had interesting and different perspectives we're sad to say goodbye as well so thank you for that um Rory said, I felt the discussion missed a key difficult aspect where, for instance, they use the example of insect-based food. So Rory's dog, great that Rory's dog has, has shifted to insect-based uh, food to reduce their meat carbon footprint. I like that. That's a, that's a trend that's kind of happening. Um, but Rory raises a question saying, well, if we're killing a bunch of insects, is that actually better or worse? Because the number of lives lost is far greater. And if you extrapolate that question, well, is each insect life worth the same as a mammal or a fish? Um, does every animal have an equal value? And if that's true, don't plants have a life and microbes, etc.? Um, so I do love how engaged our, our listeners, is, uh, listeners are with these questions. I don't know if you get this on like the Joe Rogan podcast, but I like that we're getting into the philosophical complexities of life and, and that stuff. So for me, um, I don't really think this is about whether a thing is living or not. It's more just whether it has the capacity to feel pain. And actually, this is exactly the concept that, Rory, if you live in the UK, that's being debated as the UK's animal sentience bill goes through Parliament. And that would recognise that all vertebrates have sentience, i.e. they can feel pain and they, you know, um, uh, you know have... Have basically have futures and have a conception of their of their lives and therefore we shouldn't cause um, them to have pain but it's certainly true that if you have that thinking well if if the bad thing is causing animal animals pain well if the animal doesn't feel pain then probably it's okay to eat them and certainly that's why some animal welfare campaigners say it's totally fine to farm and eat mussels and other bivalves and they point out that mussels don't have a central nervous system so it's very unlikely that they can feel pain but of course for lots of creatures this is true of crustaceans and, and things like that and maybe insects too we just don't know if they can feel pain or not so the jury's still out on whether it might be right to farm them it's a debate that's going to 
run and run. And I think for me, it will be really interesting to hear how people are talking about this in 10, 15, 20 years time, not to equate it to something that is very black and white. But if if we think back to 10, 15, 20 years ago, discussions and people's attitudes around the climate crisis were very, very different to what they are now. And it's kind of amazing, even though there's still a lot of work to do, how quickly people's attitudes have changed and people's behaviours have changed. So where will we be with this in 10, 15, 20 years time? Will it be abhorrent that there were factory farmed chickens? Will we all be eating an awful lot more vegetables in our diet? Or yeah, will will people come to accept that, okay, they need to up the number of bivalves in their diet because that's an okay thing to do? Whereas torturing a chicken for six weeks so that you can have a tasty dinner isn't the right thing to do. But we've still got plenty to work out. Podcast at wired.co.uk if you want to get in touch. Um, and join the debate on that. I'm sure Matt will be more than happy to pick apart the uh, philosophical ups and downs of that one. Uh, and anything else that we talked about on the show this week, or if you're trawling back through the archives, uh, anything from recent weeks as well, podcast at wired.co.uk. Thanks so much to everybody that got in touch this week. And thanks to you all for listening as always. We'll be back same time next week. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.